the great storytellers, what they're doing, they're giving you a punch in the face that's not the whole story. And so they're giving you a setup, a premise. Uh, one of the things that we find super effective is engaging me with the drama of one character or two characters really clearly, like set up a thing that is going to be people that I care about um, so that I want to find out what happens. So don't do a crowd of people or set the scene. Oh, it's in a small town and look, there's a tractor and on the tractor is a farmer and skip, right? I'm gone. But start with a farmer cleaning a gun and you're like, wait, what's going on here and what's going to happen? So I think we need to lead people into those stories. Welcome everyone, my name is Julie Masters and this is another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence, people who have an amazing inside edge on a world of influence that you do not get access to every day, to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, in the time it will take me to introduce my next guest, 2,400 hours of video will be uploaded to YouTube. Today alone, 5 billion videos will be watched, which, if you do the maths, should equate to 5 billion opportunities to interrupt and capture the attention of those eyeballs, right? Wrong. More like 5 billion opportunities to get lost, go unseen, and be drowned out in one of the noisiest rooms on earth. So, in a world where we now have the ability to pause live TV, fast forward adverts, pay for interruption free viewing, and tune out billions of dollars of carefully crafted attempts to steal our attention, or in the world of my next guest, just press skip in the bottom right hand corner of the screen. The question becomes how do you make sure that the stories that you are telling are unskippable? Now, that was the question I asked my next guest the first time that we met, nearly two years ago in the middle of a Boston blizzard. Quite an experience. His response and the data he was able to provide to me from literally having studied those 5 billion daily hours of YouTube viewing, having stood behind the scenes and watched the behavior of those eyeballs on a daily basis, answered more questions for me about online storytelling than any conversation since. Hence why he is back today. My next guest is Ben Jones, creative director at Google and head of Unskippable Labs. Unskippable Labs is a team within Google that started the day Ben decided to put his own credit card on the line. He literally handed his credit card to a team member and said, right, I just, I want to find out, I want to figure out exactly what makes a YouTube story or specifically an advertisement so compelling that it is literally unskippable. What he found, what his team found, was completely contra to everything that I had understood about online storytelling. In that conversation, that first conversation, we broke down the Netflix effect and how it continues to defy the rules of attention. Clue, if human attention spans are really at their lowest point, eight seconds at last check, then why are we binge watching more TV series than ever before? Fans of Game of Thrones, put your hands up. We talked about ideal story lengths. We talked about production values and the incredible results of how long we are literally willing to watch a video of a brick wall. I'm not joking. As it turns out, and Ben's credit card limit will attest, 
The answer is a ridiculously long period of time. If your business is in any way dependent on trading attention, storytelling, or any form of content marketing, definitely go back. Go back to the archives and check that one out. But today, in today's conversation, we go even deeper into the wilderness, diving into what is and what is to come in the world of online storytelling, including topics such as the bottom line traits that all unskippable stories have in common, how data can and increasingly will change the way we tell stories, the way we tell our stories online and in person, including machine learning and why it's not time for creative directors to retire just yet. Good news or bad news, depending on how you feel. The emergence of intent signals. Please check this one out. It's huge. What they are and how we can use them to get more sophisticated about the stories that we tell to who and when. How and when to pull the lever of customizing content to avoid wasting time and money. A huge issue for anybody that's trying to tell stories on a limited budget. Whether our ability to make good decisions when it comes to content actually impairs or increases the more data we have access to. I think intuitively we feel like it decreases, but it's a really interesting look as to why that is. The number one metric to double down on when it comes to amplifying what actually works. And obviously, my main reason for talking to Ben, which is what he sees coming on the horizon for digital storytelling. You know, I, I always love having people back on the show and it's something that I intend to do more of over over the coming year. It's such a, an amazing opportunity to jump back in and explore the extra 10% of the iceberg that we rarely have time to touch in the, in the usual parameters of the podcast. However, in Ben's case, and with 250 unskippable experiments in counting up his sleeve, I just feel like it's an iceberg of knowledge that we will never reach the end of. So, after all that, sit back, stretch out, stride through, sip on. I could literally just keep going here. And enjoy my reunion and my conversation with the man at the forefront of the future of storytelling, Ben Jones. Welcome to the podcast, Ben Jones. Thanks. It's great to be back. You know, it's, I, I was thinking this morning when I was doing my prep, kind of escaped out of, out of the house and went for a very early morning coffee. And I was thinking, I love, I love second interviews because it means I can ask all the questions either, you know, wasn't smart enough to ask the first time around. I didn't get to the first time around, plus catch up on where you've been to. And we, we get to skip that whole first section I and mean, just jump straight into it. That's great. Well, I'm ready. Where are we, where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Well, you tell me if my stats are wrong because these are ever evolving. We were just talking about how quickly these stats evolve. So at this point in time, as I believe, it's 400 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. Five billion videos watched on YouTube every day. Now, YouTube is obviously owned by Google and you began Unskippable Labs. And for those of you who haven't listened to the first episode I did with Ben on Unskippable Storytelling, it's, it's not a prerequisite to listen to before you listen to this episode. However, I would definitely suggest for context or even just for a deep dive into it, go back and have a listen. So... You began Unskippable within Google as a breakaway team to, to just understand what was happening with this huge volumes of video-led storytelling and what was essentially skippable and not skippable, like the, the little skip button on the bottom right-hand corner. So can we just start, let's start with a quick definition just to set some context of what you were hoping to uncover and why for those of, those of us that haven't heard the first episode. <laughs> 
Yeah, so uh, we were, I was actually started, I started as an internal project with my own team to understand how mobile was changing video. And we were going into these creative agencies and clients and saying, you have to make all this content and, and you need to do all this optimization. And I realized we were treating it sort of academically because I had been a creative director at agencies and I knew, you know, you didn't have four hours in your day to make new content like your the, the lash is going all the time. Um, so I said to my team, you know, we're going to we're going to look at some of these questions that are interesting for us. We're going to shoot our own stuff on a phone and we'll run it on on my credit card. Um, and the first question that we were going to ask is do we pay attention to a face longer or a place longer on mobile? Is it different from desktop? And, and you know, what is the relative impact of that? And so it was super basic, right? We shot a, we shot a, a minute of a guy on our team drinking a cup of coffee against a wall um, and 30 minutes, uh, I mean, a, a minute at our designer's window in Williamsburg. So a place and a face, we called it portrait versus landscape, but it was not about orientation. It was just that. Um, and uh, and I told a woman on my team, you know, put it on, put it up skippably. Uh, so you only pay if somebody watches 30 seconds of it and run $100 on my credit card. Just like see what happens. Uh, and I thought it would take months. It might never fill. Uh, so um, uh, she came in the next day and said, we spent 350 bucks you know, last night. Uh, and Is that the moment where you suddenly regret handing over your credit card? Exactly, exactly. Um, and what that meant was people were choosing to watch it at, you know, between 32 and 35 percent rate, which was r roughly double what a lot of the advertisers were getting at that time. And and so, number one, that was, you know, super intriguing to me. Why would you watch a person drinking a cup of coffee like no sound? No. I mean, there was audio, but there was no talking or anything. But second, it allowed us essentially overnight to, to confirm our hypothesis that we will pay attention to a face longer and we'll pay attention proportionally longer on mobile. Uh, and so, you know, it opened up this whole possibility of asking these questions and getting answers. And if you think of the amount of time that you know I'd spent in my career already arguing about that, what's my opening shot and how am I gonna use it? And then that mobile was changing so fast and literally overnight for 350 bucks, we could find an answer. Um, that, that, was, that was where we started. And we did uh, three, four, five of these experiments, quality. Uh, we did an orientation, like do we wanna be direct to camera, the sort of classic TV three quarter profile. Um, and got super interesting results. And they just started, started to stack up. And so we invited uh, BBDO, our friends at BBDO, to do an experiment with us with Mountain Dew. And that was the first one. Um, three year and now, two and a half, three years ago. Uh, and we've done 300 experiment plus experiments since then. Uh, and we've looked at 30,000 ads, uh, top and bottom performing ads in all these different dimensions. Um, and it's it's a it's a fascinating to see seat to see the development of human attention. What what's true, what's not true, what you can see in the data, how people pay attention and nod, and it gives you a immediate testing ground where people are like, oh, we have the attention spans of goldfish. Well, it turns out goldfish have like uh, month long attention spans. They they have much richer attention spans than we thought. But also that's not true of people. Uh, so um, so it's been great, amazing. Again, for, we're going to jump into that attention spans piece, but for anyone that hasn't heard about it, Skippable Labs, please go and, and find the videos online. I have sent these videos to so many clients. They're quick. They're three-minute videos. And some of the things that you've covered in those videos, you know, whether perfection is what we're looking for when it comes to online storytelling, which I think is a huge question for organizations at the moment. Um, you've looked at length. You've looked at, at devices. You've looked at when to mention the brand, at, you know, 
whether you mention the brand upfront, whether you mention the brand at all. And I know there's a big movement that I'm noticing at the moment towards unbranded content, which is a whole, you know, different playing field. So let's jump back in. Let's jump back into attention spans because, you know, we've talked before and you mentioned the number one myth you see when it comes to what gets and keeps our attention online is that it's our attention spans are shrinking. And you just mentioned it then. And you've always been very clear that it's not our attention spans that are shrinking. It's our tolerance for things that we're not interested in. Can you just go a little bit deeper into that? Sure. Um, I, I, I think that there is this, that, that, that there is a sort of, I'm going to use academic in a pejorative sense, but a theory that, you know, the world is getting faster. We're on these screens, are, are, we're frittering away all of our time. And so we, ha- we lack the ability to pay attention. And, and what we have found um, in our own platform, but observe outside, is that that's not true. We're deciding much more quickly, are we going to give something our attention or not? And so rather than it being a negative, like, oh, we're losing our minds, sort of, uh, I think it's much more positive to think of it as a muscle. We have a muscle that is filtering much more actively and much more powerfully. And there's a there's a physical piece of that, like I the way that I choose to pay attention. And then there are lay, technical layers under that, right? My my feeds, my media is cultivated to me. I've selected a set of channels, of platforms, subscriptions. And so there's this massive filtering that's that's happening all the time. And we're just getting better at it, like much stronger, much we decide much quicker. Um, we have much richer uh, criteria to decide against. But when we choose, we want a lot, right? We just we just finished 10 years of Game of Thrones. I'm angry that the like one of the prequels got canceled. And I'm like, wait a second, I want another 10 years of this and that. Or, you know, I think uh, Avengers Endgame, it, it, it requires the pre-viewing of 27, sep- 27 separate feature-length films. Like, think about, Im- imagine conceiving of that as a product. You have to watch 27 feature films before you can watch this three-hour movie. And yet... You know, it's one of the most popular movies in the world, um, and we have no problem giving our time to it, uh, or all of, or all of the other ones, or the alternate universes that are going to come. So, if we look at our, and, it, and it's true across media, movies for sure. You know, uh, binge watching television or television-like products, the streaming services that are all launching are dependent on massive investments in bingeable content. Books are getting longer and not shorter. The chapters are shorter, but the books are longer. Um, and so, it, you know, that dynamic of, of, of attention is is choice. Uh, that's the key. And you've called that, it, you just make me think, I literally just went and watched um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is potentially one of the longest movies I have ever watched. And the whole way through, I was thinking, something's going to happen soon. Any minute now. <laughs> Something's going to happen. And, but I was quite, I mean, testament to Tarantino's storytelling, but I was quite happy to sit there for three hours, yeah. just wondering if anything was going to happen. Yeah. Now, you've called that the Netflix effect, which I just think is, is a, a great term. And now, the twist on that is, firstly, that, yes, we're happy to binge hours and hours and hours, weeks of content, but the Netflix effect has something additional as part of it, and that is that you need to get my attention first. If you get my attention, I will give you unlimited amounts of it, but you have to get my attention first. And you've talked about that in terms of almost um, a trailer or a sizzle reel or the way that movies use. And advertising has become that, a way to puncture our attention in short, compelling bites. I don't know if I'm doing justice to the Netflix effect. Can you... Yeah, I think I think uh, we we say you know you have to start with a punch in the face or dessert first, right? You have to give me a reason to watch right away, 
and kind of audition me for what you're going to tell me. And it's not just that advertising are, is doing that, but you need to do that within the advertising. So in the movie studio business, I think we see now there's a sort of trailer for the trailer, which is five or six seconds. And now that we're used to that convention, you're starting to see that breakdown where you need to do that at three or four seconds or eight or nine seconds so that it doesn't exactly sync with when the skip button comes up because, you know, then I look down and I think, well, I'll move on. Maybe I'll watch that later and, and then you're lost. Um, but that sort of punch in the face or dessert first we see, we see across everything. And the other thing that we see is that people are continuously reevaluating. Uh, so, you know, yes, you audition for the first, but you need to think now how you're structuring that longer content. I may give you three minutes or 10 minutes or an hour or whatever, but through that whole process, I'm deciding again and deciding again, there's not this like, oh, you got me. And so now I'll watch forever. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, smart advertisers, thoughtful advertisers, as they're telling richer stories, thinking about that chapterization differently and the layers of the story and how often do I need cliffhangers of what sort and how am I sort of always starting and ending stories. And, and that richness, I think, is opening up a, a lot of potential for brands to tell great stories. Just, just hone in on that for a second, because the traditional way that most of us would think about advertising is, you know, it's very short. I mean, I don't know the the lengths that are most recommended but you know they're very short bites a minute maybe even less and you're talking about cliffhangers how do you put a cliffhanger into into an advert that's almost treating it like it is a long-form piece of content yeah um some other time i'll give you the history of ad links it's actually pretty interesting it has nothing to do with attention or storytelling and entirely to do with profitability for for publishers um I think that we see, you know, in a six second ad, that's the forced view. There's no need for cliffhangers. You can do one thing, do it and get out. But even at 15 seconds, that there is a need for understanding how you're layering that information if it's skippable. And then 30 seconds or longer, certainly. So, you know, is there a, is there a six second piece and then 12 seconds and then I probably have you. And if it's 30 seconds and I've still got you, I should probably go on longer. And so, you know, I don't see any point in having a 30, 32 second ad in our world. Um, uh, you know, no one is going to be so interested in your story uh, as they are when they're choosing to watch with a skip button in front of them, right? That you that you have them there. And so what else? Like if I'd like it, another, tell me something else, a different feature, go deeper, you know, make another joke that gets me thinking about what I could do next. And the skip button traditionally comes up after five seconds, I think. Is that still correct? Five, five. five yeah. seconds. And so just getting really grassroots with it. What have you, the one or two common traits for that five seconds where I will either skip or not skip? The yeah. unskippable storytellers have in common. Um, I think that the unskippable storytellers that do it well, uh, so people who are doing it badly are like, hey, you're going to skip. And so I'm going to like force my brand in and make a very uninteresting five seconds, you know, basically guaranteeing a skip. Um, with the idea that, well, at least I've got you. If you're doing that, just do a six second ad, right? Don't, don't, don't bother. The great storytellers, what they're doing, they're giving you a punch in the face. That's not the whole story. And so they're giving you a setup, a premise. Uh, one of the things that we find um, super effective is engaging me with, you know, the drama of one character or 
two characters really clearly, like set up a thing that is going to be people that I care about um, so that I want to find out what happens. And it doesn't have to be explicit, but I, I need somebody to focus on. So don't do, you know, a crowd of people or set the scene. Oh, it's in a small town. And look, there's a tractor. And on the tractor is a farmer and skip, right? I'm gone. I'm gone. But let's start with a farmer, you know, uh, cleaning a gun. And you're like, wait, what's going on here? And check off gun style, right? It's got to go off and what's going to happen. And um, so I think we need to lead people into those stories. So, so human driven, going right back to the beginning, face versus place, human driven, face driven, and cliffhanger, almost using that, that language, cliffhanger driven. So I want to know what's going to happen next. Yes. For a longer, for a longer ad. So now, uh, again, we'll go wonky a little bit. I think that there's a separation happening where we have been very focused on short-termism, and there's a, a lot of great stuff. I really recommend um, Orlando Woods' uh, book from System One called Lemon about right brain and left brain and the way our communications is flattening out and becoming rational and so on. Um, and it's an over-reliance on short-termism, and we've lost the sort of long-term vision of, of brand building. But that short-termism... You know, mental salience for your countryman Byron Sharp, the sort of top of mind awareness, like those ads are short. They don't need to be, they don't necessarily need to be human. They need to be distinctive about the brand. Um, in some categories like like food, for example, actually we don't want people in our food ads. Food has become intimate and our relationship is with food. We don't want it mediated by another person. So I don't want to see somebody eating what I sort of now think of as my food. So in food, we see people disappearing. In auto, we see people in. So as soon as I see a car with a person in, I pay attention when the person leaves, my interest in the car leaves. So, you know, some, some flex, some variability there. Um, but the longer term brand building, emotional connection, I want to see people, I want to see drama, I want to see, you know, nuance and, and, and so on. And so I think my, here's my one big prediction for 2020, we'll see a swing back from this short termism, you know, six seconds, leave with the product, leave with the brand, jam it in my brain and back into this longer term. I need to build a brand. I need to have emotional connection and that longer storytelling. It needs humanity. It needs drama or humor. Um, and it, and it needs, uh, it needs, you know, narrative structure that's very thoughtful. It's not about what am I going to jam into 15 seconds? That's a whole playing field to go into, but I'm just going to touch like just the corner of the playing field. So, I mean, we look at unbranded content. One of the, one of the stats that, that floored me when I came across it probably about two or three years ago now is that 96%, I think it is now of everything that we engage with on an emotional level when we're when we're looking online, when we're consuming via our digital devices, is unbranded. Basically, it comes from a human being and not a brand. And so we have this shift from this perfect entity of, of the brand, very little emotional connection, to suddenly the human beings within brands or the human beings representing brands. For organizations that are looking to use that trend, use that move, that unbranded, unbranded movement, are there any... Is there any advice? Is there anyone doing it well? Let's start there. Who's doing it really well? I, I think we're seeing I think we're seeing a rise of the sort of influencer, right? An authentic engagement with influencers and the influencers who are doing it well, I think are doing a great job. They're genuinely, authentically curious or use the products or are are portraying their exploration of them in authentic ways because they know what their audience is like. So beauty brands in particular, a lot of beauty brands, Glossier, for example, I think it does a fantastic job of 
identifying unique voices, bringing them, giving them the freedom to talk about the products in ways that are that are good and feel and feel authentic. Um, I, you know, the the for a while there was this like I'm going to hide the fact that this is an ad. Well, guess what? Everyone knows it's an ad. Like automatically they know it's an ad. Stop imagining that they don't know it's an ad, or that you can hide that it's an ad until they're so interested that they're suddenly like, oh my god, you know, Clorox. I had no idea. Um, so get over that and realize that your job is to tell an interesting story about your product, not to just tell an interesting story and then, you know, jam the product in at the end. Um, so the, the brands that are doing that well are, are embracing that like oldest of old school challenge. Be interesting about what you are as opposed to just trying to be interesting. Uh, and, you know, I think there's a there's a sort of schadenfreude that I see these huge companies investing all this money in content and the content does not do well. I mean, like Amazon has some amazing shows, great shows and a bunch of terrible ones. Netflix has a bunch of terrible ones, you know, as Apple comes on HBO max, all these guys, like there'll be some amazing ones and some terrible ones. And they have all the talent in the world and all the money and so on. So don't imagine that you as an advertiser, you know, are going to be so interesting that I'm going to pick you over that but also be interesting about what you're about because no one else is trying to tell that story. Macy's made an interesting decision last year. I don't know if you saw that. They decided to take a lot of their money out of traditional influencer marketing and bring it in. They created an internal team called, I think it was called Macy's Style Crew. Okay. And they actually featured pretty much in most of their advertising, they featured this little crew from within their organization because they realized that those people had the networks that they were after. Those people had the connections that they were trying to get but failing to get. And so when they co-created content with this little crew within their walls, they started sharing it. And they had huge connections with other people like them who were also their target market. And it's just gone. I think they're up to, they started with 40, they went up to 400. They're over, I think they're, they're in the thousands now, the Macy's style wow. crew. Wow. Yeah, it was a really fascinating flip just using, again, that face versus place, um, authentic storytelling, but actually using the networks of their own staff members as opposed to trying to grab other people that they don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's um, that the energy of building and maintaining an audience, there's a real talent there that I think is under leverage where we're like, oh, they're just, you know, they're just influencers or they're doing the people who are really great at it. And I've been fortunate to spend some time with the, you know, YouTube creators who are really amazing at it. It is an, an unbelievable talent. And the fact that they can build and hold that energy from a group of people that are so passionate and be authentically themselves, you know, it's a, uh, it's worth the money that they're paid to be able to do that in the same way that, you know, if you can hit a fastball, you should make a million dollars if millions of dollars. It's very hard to do. It's the same kind of thing, I think. So let's go further down the rabbit hole into online storytelling. And I want to look at the role of data. So, you know, I was thinking about this this morning and I was thinking, you know, in this day and age at a first glance, advertising online storytelling should just be like a lay down was you know, thanks to machine learning and the, the amount of data that we have, you know, most creative directors should be just be able to go to the Maldives and sip Mai Tais and, and only and only work for half the year, which I know, which I know very well in my own. If you have that job, please send it because I'm in. I'm in. I know my own world that is completely not the case, but it's fascinating that we have more information than we've ever had. We know more. We know more about our target audience than we've ever. We know where they live, what they do, their disposable income, in some cases, the schools that their children go to, and yet we feel like we almost know less. 
And you've said that, you know, I think we're a little bit drunk on data at the moment. Is that is that the case? Do we have too much data now that our decision making is actually impaired because of it? Um, we haven't, we, we, you know, it's, it, it's like when you first learn to walk, we don't quite know what we're doing. And so we have this data and we imagine that it's providing answers that it can't yet provide. Um, and we're not really sure where the value is. So we're, we're in the process of building machine learning models for creative, right. To identify patterns. Um, and so we put in a lot of elements. When does the brand appear? You know, is there a dog? What's the setting? Like all of these different things for different verticals to say, you know, show us where there are significant correlations to add effectiveness. Um, and the ratio of elements that we put in to ones that are significant is like 75 or 100 to 5. So very few of them are consistently correlated to things that are right. And so it takes a, an ocean of data to create a, you know, a, a perfect distilled cup. Uh, and we're getting oceans and oceans and oceans. And we, we haven't been sure, like, is a cup the endpoint, Or am I going to get a lake of some like brackish lake? Or I'm lost in this metaphor now. But um, we're not really sure sort of where to end up or what is valuable or even in the way that the machines are analyzing the data that's there, what to pay attention to. One of my, one of my favorite examples of this, um, and they may have solved it by now, but for a long time, the visual machine learning couldn't distinguish between a chihuahua and a blueberry muffin. And I'll show you some bad news for any chihuahuas out there. I know, or anyone who likes blueberry muffins. Um, It, 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 you know, but it shows you like in in that data what is what's a strong signal and what's a weak signal. What do we definitely know and we and we don't know? And and the machine learning capability is growing so fast uh, that it's hard for us to understand where it's going and where those gaps are. And so suddenly we end up with, with, you know, chihuahuas when we wanted blueberry muffins. And these recommendations are, you know, built into platforms, into auctions, into assessments of ads. Um, and, and we're ending up in spaces we don't want to get into. My other, my other favorite one, there was a struggle between uh, Oreo cookie and snow tires, which the Canadians thought like, they thought that was pretty fantastic. Again, if you look at images, you know, and you're looking at a chunk and it's the same color and there are some elements that are the same. So. And what we're, what we're effectively talking about here is um, the digital world's ability to be able to track what you like, track what you watch, track what you're interested in, and feed you more, feed you more of the same, more targeted storytelling. What about geolocating? I've noticed that geolocating seems to be huge right now and getting some great results, as in situational storytelling. You are at this exact place, mm-hmm. therefore I will feed you a story in relation to something that is available in that space. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that play out in the data at all? Um, we see some of it, you know, the tools for knowing exactly where you are with good reason are not that accurate. Uh, and um, I think we're trying to find what's the right balance of, of privacy and, and safety and the value of the stories. Um, I think one of the biggest, again, there is, a, there is a strategic narrative that is like more data is better. And the more I know about you and the more exactly an ad fits who you are, the better it is. That's true if it's need fulfillment, right? If you want a blue SUV and I can know that and I can show you a blue SUV instead of other cars, that's great. Um, but what happens if you don't know? You don't know a color, you don't know a car, you don't even know that you want a car. How do we build desire? And the role there of the audience signals is very different because we're not answering a rational need that's already there. Uh, and, and so in that case, the thing that we see is people are trying to use it in the same way, right? I'm gonna take advantage of all these signals and 
say, hey, you're a left-handed cellist who owns cats and lives in Sweden. And so suddenly my ad has to say all of those things. And as a result of that, the ad becomes about you and not about my brand. We we lose the thread of what am I saying about you know my blue SUV as opposed to left-handed cellists in Sweden who like X. Um, and the thing that we're finding on that on that desire creation side is the relationship between between signal and impact is not rational or not necessarily rational. And there may be other things that are richer and stronger there that that create more emotional impact that are not just like you like music, it says music, you like sports, it says sports. And so that's a and and you've used this language an evolution from rational connections, which is, you know, you like sports, I'll feed you sports equipment ads to mm-hmm. to um, intense signals. You've, you just called it desire creation. So mm-hmm. trying to initiate intent or trying to monitor intent before it's overtly obvious. What Talk to me about what an intent signal is because I know that you've been monitoring them. Yeah, so intent signal is actually a rational connection. Like you have said, I want a blue SUV. So it is a, it is, you have said, I want, this is an intent, I'm expressed intent. This sort of upstream from that, we don't really know what's going on there. Affinity is in that space, right? I like heavy metal music. And so I'm more likely to respond to heavy metal music messaging in some way, maybe, maybe not. Um, so intent signal is super powerful, right? That The whole business of search is built off intent signals. You search for a thing, that's an explicit intent signal. We give you access to that thing and that creates business. That's why our business is big and successful. But the intent signal only goes so far. And so for a thing that I don't know or a thing where I have different intent signals, like I I have expressed a desire for a new shaving cream, right? But I'm not yours necessarily. And so how do you, how you build a brand to create desire when there are 15 different shaving creams that may be interesting to you? Or before you have thought that you're reconsidering, you know, shaving cream that you may want, how am I playing in that space? So that as you are drawn into this idea of like, maybe I need to do that, right? How are we building that side of the equation? Not just the like, I'm looking for a new shaving cream. What one should I get? And what are you what are you learning about that? I mean, I just I love this term desire creation because a lot of organizations are facing that, right? The the you've got the people that want what you have. You've got the people who are already out there searching and there's plenty of stuff you could do there, you know, SEO, um, data collection. But then you have this other subset of people, right, who could love what you have if they only knew that they right. that they that they wanted it, that they had an affinity right. for it. What are you learning about that, bridging that gap? Um, so we're learning that it's that it's not necessarily rational. Uh, so that 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 as we come on the more on the desire side, um, that there are things that are surprised. So we did a whole series of experiments on audience signals, uh, you know, demographic as the most basic, and then affinities. You like music, and then life events. You know, you just moved, or um, you started a new job, or like sets of signals that show us that stuff. Um, and when you respond in a rational way, yes, it has an impact. But actually, some of the most powerful uh, were responses to life events where the ad had nothing to do with with the life event. So, targeting people who are you know just moved or 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 have a new baby or empty nesters with any kind of ad was one of the most powerful connections that we saw. If the even if the ad had said nothing about it, and you know, you can speculate, why is that? And when I'm going through a life event, I'm I'm reevaluating, maybe I'm in a new environment, maybe I'm more permeable, more susceptible stories, more open, you know, my eyes, my senses are more open. Um, but that for me was a real signal that like, hey, there's something going on here that, that we don't understand. So we're just, 
uh, I think in a, in a month or so about to launch a project, uh, not launch, um, publish a project called Wonder Pilot, where we invented a travel brand to explore this question. So we, we, the question we really wanted to answer is, is, um, is there a better way to use audience signals to redefine a new mass audience, right? We started with demographics as mass, 18 to, to 34. Um, and we were working with, a, with friends of ours at a creative agency, and they said, I hope I never get another brief that says, reach millennials, right? What a useless brief, reach millennials. And so we thought, okay, can we, can we define a, a millennial-sized audience that is built some other way? Uh, and what would that way be? Uh, and our hypothesis was that there may be sort of outlooks on the world or mindsets where one is expansive, right? I'm I'm emotional, I'm in, seeking inspiration, I'm sort of open out to the world, and one uh, restrictive, task-focused, rational, um, uh, you know, uh, task-oriented. And we built sort of rough targeting pools out of a bunch of different signals, one matching each, and then we wrote ads for this travel brand we invented called Wonder Pilot. One very expansive, very inspirational. Doesn't tell you what the product or service is, just the brand and this like, you know, travel changes your life, open up to the world. And one that was very rational. You know, you have a problem, you work too much, you need a vacation, and it had a solution. This is a company and they'll create this package and it was an explicit, you know, um, a benefit. And, and we ran them against these targeting pools to say, what happens? And interestingly, the ad recall was higher for the opposite pools. So the sort of expansive ad was remembered more by the by the focused mindset and vice versa. But consideration was significantly higher when they when they matched, when you know you had an expansive ad and this sort of expansive targeting or restricted so, ad. So just walk me through that for anybody, I mean the that that kind of skipped over for a second. So we've got we've got two different things you're monitoring there. You've got recall and consideration. Yeah. So consider so recall obviously being do I remember the ad at a later time and then um, consideration being would I consider purchasing yes. from that brand. And so recall was more effective when it was at different ends. So the expansive ad to the focused mindset. Correct. Correct. However, consideration was in was in correlation with it. Correct. Correct. And as we dug into that, we, we reached out to our friends in the academic community, and one of the professors explained to us that there is this congruence theory that says when things are incongruent with what we expect, we're more likely to remember them. They break the pattern, but we're less likely to favor them. And the opposite is true. If things are congruent with how we look at the world, we're more likely to have a positive emotional association, um, but less likely to remember them because they're, they're more in line with the things that we're seeing in the world. And so uh, so this, these results match that congruence theory very well. And it creates all kinds of interesting questions for ads, right? So then do I need an incongruent beginning, right? You're brushing your teeth and it's the middle of the street. And then congruence, like I'm happy and I've got a beautiful smile and everybody loves me and I feel like a good person. Um, and, and vice versa, like are you playing within an individual story, this idea of incongruent and congruent? And how does that match with these audience signals of how you look at the world? That's, that's so interesting because you, you're essentially, from a targeting perspective, looking at people that are going through transition events who are more emotionally available or, into, like, as you said, we don't know, intellectually available, who have just broken their state for whatever reason and now open to a, a bunch of new things. Right. So you've got targeting them and then you've got the congruence, incongruence part of the storytelling, which, yeah, I think breaks the mold for online storytelling. Any part of that breaks the mold for online storytelling. Let's 
Let's look at that because we're talking about customizing, essentially. We're talking about customizing stories to particular people in particular situations and sometimes particular places. Now, for any creative director that I know or any CEO that I work with, that raises one big question, which is, isn't that just massively expensive? You mm-hmm. know, we've, we've got to customize all these ads for all these people in all these different places. You know, that just that, that's going to cost us a fortune as opposed to one size fits all across all platforms. In practical terms, how much do you need to pull that lever, that customization lever in order to get cut through? Yeah. uh, So when we did this experiment, uh, we did uh, 52 uh, assets with 10 brands globally. And what we found was, um, especially for a shorter ad, a six second ad, you can just change copy. You don't need to change the thing the whatever is in the background, but changing the copy to match affinity gets you most of the bang that you get from customization. And for that, there are a lot of tools we have a tool called director mix, and you can essentially have a spreadsheet of lines and a spreadsheet of backgrounds and auto combine. And you want to make a new ad, you just type another thing in the spreadsheet and another version comes out. You don't need an editor. You need to redo, remake, rebuild. So that side of things is getting much more efficient as the ads get longer. They need more customization. So you need to not just match a copy line, but, you know, the setting and maybe even the concept. Uh, And that's where I think this short-termism, long-termism, and the rise of machine learning is getting really interesting because the machines can do the short-term stuff really well, right? Write some lines and and pick a set of backgrounds, get them to auto-combine, have them mapped targeting, and you can have all of the six-second, you know, distinctive assets, mental salience, like all of that world work really well, which then lets you focus on, okay, but I'm going to tell my anthemic story beautifully, amazingly, richly. I'm going to spend a lot of time in casting and, you know, polish every nut and bolt of that. Um, And I think for me, that's how the world sort of seems to be going is the machines are going to come in on this sort of short-term side where the, the response is sort of more mechanical and that will open up creativity on the longer form side. No, no, no machine is going to script a, you know, a beautiful two minute story. It just can't. And there's too much complexity to isolate the variables. You know, if we have 350 variables in one of our code books, we're good at six seconds. Some things may be helpful at 15 seconds at two minutes. Like, is it performance? Is it casting? Is it where the brand is? There are so many different things that have to work together to make that magic happen that, you know, we need the discrimination of human taste there for sure, for sure, for sure. So one of the largest competitive advantages going forward is going to be back to to primitive again, which is human storytelling, our ability Mm -hmm. to be able to map out and structure human stories. Mm -hmm. For sure. I I definitely think so. In combination with surrendering some control to the thing that machines do well, right? That let let that happen in in, in, uh, concert. Um, so I'll date myself for 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 uh, folks who know anything about digital marketing. But in the early days of the internet, we were making banner ads, and you had to hand code frame by frame the animations in order to get the banner ad sizes down low enough that they would run on modems. No one misses that, you know. No one thinks that that doing that was a was a lost art, and it's magic, and we should get back to it. And banner ads were the better for it. Like, thank God, thank God, that's taken out of our hands, and we don't have to worry about it. We can make a banner ad, and a machine can resize it, and you know, fit to the ten thousand different mobile screens. I think that we'll we'll come to realize the digital utilities of machine learning are are similar. Not that they're impinging on my art, 
but they're meaning I can focus on my art while, you know, it makes these 750 versions that the targeting tells us are necessary in these formats to fit all these people. So just, I just want to pivot something that was on my mind through looking at all of this. I mean, we've got advertising, we've got, you know, essentially a paid model of storytelling. How does the same apply? Do we know if the same applies to, um, to social movements, to, um, to campaigns around ideas as opposed to campaigns around products? Has that ever been tested? Uh, we're looking at purpose right now, which a lot of people are talking about. You know, what's the impact of purpose and, and where is it authentic or not? I, I think it, we're going to find that that ends up looking at that sort of short-termism, long-termism spectrum where purpose has a role, but it's one kind of role that could work as an emotional link in longer and more complex stories. But humor, I think, can work there also. You know, drama can work there also. I think there are sets of, of emotionally rich territories that brands can enter and own if they do it if they do it well. Um, I think, you know, we'll see. It's, it's interesting to think about how this would play out in political campaigns as well. I'm terrified, actually. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know the state of Australian politics as well as I should, but in the U.S. right now, the, you know, Twitter deciding that they're not al- allowing any political ads to run, Facebook saying, you know, it's free speech, and so politicians can lie in their ads as freely as they want. It is creating this mayhem where we don't really know how what our responsibility is to the truth. Other than at an individual level, you're supposed to figure it out. But as a as a social compact, what is our responsibility as a society to make sure there's some representation of truth? We don't know. And that was exactly what this whole Internet thing was supposed to solve. Right. It was access to the world's information and we'll all be able to educate ourselves. And and I think as it's amplified our ability to self-educate, it's amplified our ability to blast propaganda out at unbelievable levels. And yeah, I don't think that we're we're anywhere close to figure out, I mean, if you just look at the institutions that calls into question, you've got the, the political institutions that it calls into question. You've also got the media institutions, both traditional and digital, that it calls into question. And and then you've got our own personal preferences. You know, we have a preference for story. And so we've, we've always had this um, preference for politicians who can tell a good story, who have the charisma to be able to do that. I mean, you just look, if it, look at climate change. You've, you've got the cut through that Al Gore got with an inconvenient truth versus, you know, a decade of scientists trying to get that same cut through. So I, I don't have any specific question in all of that other than to say, you know, there is, there's so much that we're learning about storytelling. And then when you start applying it to these areas that have such a huge impact on our lives, such as, you know, climate change, such as the politicians that we vote for or buy into, you know, what we're learning just opens up many other cans, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, many mm -hmm. other cans of worms. I think the interesting thing about that for me is, is the range of storytellers ultimately that we have access to, right. And, and the things that make their way to the surface of, of, of culture. Uh, You think about Gangnam Style or Despacito, you know, from, from a culture in a corner of the internet to global reach, essentially almost instantly. Um, and I think that those stories that grab and hold culture will be very powerful in both directions, kind of immensely positive and, and happy and, um, and, uh, and, and damaging at the same time. It's interesting. I, 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 uh, I, I loved one of the ads that our teams produced. I didn't work on it, but it was a Google Translate ad that ran at the Super Bowl in the U.S., and they looked at, you know, the hundreds of millions of words and phrases that were translated uh, globally. And the three most common 
were, uh, were uh, thank you, uh, how are you, and I love you. Those are the three things that we most want to communicate in the world. Thank you, how are you, and I love you. And as you look at data, I'm getting chills just as I say it, you know, to say like at the most fundamental level, our desire for expression and communication is centered around, around that, around empathy, around gratitude, and around love. That's amazing. You know, it's amazing. It is amazing. And it's beautiful when you look at the amount of fear and outrage and drama that it competes against, you know, right. neither good nor bad, but you've got those two worlds. You've got the fear, outrage, and drama, and then you've got the gratitude and empathy world. And they're forever mm-hmm. competing in our consciousness for attention. Mm-hmm. And it's affirming to know, you know, with that ad that, that those words are winning out for the time being. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. That's- on, yes, on that playing field, on a human, you know, nobody is telling you what to say or measuring or it's not broadcast, but that's the thing that, that, that is revealed there. Well, let's let's go back a second. Let's go back to some metrics. So that was the social change of storytelling. Let's go back to some metrics. So you have said, you know, that there's no consistent way that everybody's agreed upon to define what winning is when it comes mm-hmm. to great ads, great storytelling, which I think is another thing that organizations are struggling with at the moment. There's 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 no definition of winning. I mean, is it likes, is it thumbs up, is it shares, is it recall, as you said, is it consideration, mm-hmm. an immediate uplift in sales, or is it trust? So mm-hmm. For you, given all the data that you have access to, if you had to double down or what, on one or two metrics, if you had to advise someone to double down on one or two metrics, what would they be for long-term success? Um, for long-term success? I, I, I mean, the thing ultimately for me is business, right? Did, did your product move off the shelves? And, and to work back as the signals get weaker and weaker and the attribution models struggle and so on, but that, like, did, did your business move? has to be one of the groundings of it. And then coming the other way, you know, to say of all of the activity metrics that we see, what seems to be over time the most durable, it's watch time. Are people choosing to give you their attention over time? Presuming, of course, your brand is present, you're telling a good story, that story is motivational, it's delivering on the other side. It's it's watch time in some in some form or another. Um, and again, that, that raises all kinds of interesting questions. What, what you know, what is paid attention versus what is organic and how are those things working together? I think, I think as Facebook has gotten like largely out of the organic business and and almost entirely in the paid side, we're seeing the opposite happen where, because there's not a time uh, gate on the stuff that ends up on YouTube, people are seeking it out and seeking it out and seeking it out when they are interested in it, not when it shows up in their feed. And so there isn't this, you know, disappearing in the scroll sensation. There is this, when, when am I interested in that information? Right. When, when, when do I need an, an instructional video on, on how to use my phone? I need it when I get a new phone, not that it hit my feed at a certain point. Um, but, but you know, the, the two hours after purchase, that's when I need it. That's when I seek it out. And that's when I find it. And so we're seeing these sort of, you know, rich libraries of content and then activation on top of that, that are using the signals to be more uh, effectively connected to people. Which goes back again to what you were saying, short term versus long term. Right. They might not have watched it just this week when you launched it. However, six months from now, 12 months from now, when they're in that situation, they could well come back to it and watch it again. Right. Which and and that runs against counter to all the models of like what are you paying for the rights for and you know how are you playing with culture when you enter culture or not what's the function of that you know not all of my content should be in a library but it's worth thinking about what am I making that has you know durability what could be evergreen or or at least lasting in some way 
Is there anything on the horizon at the moment that, you know, most of us don't have access to the binoculars that you have access to, you know, five billion hours a day's worth of data. So given the extreme binoculars that you have, is, is there anything on the horizon that we wouldn't, we wouldn't know that, that you believe will be a game changer? Um, uh, let's see that I believe will be a game changer. Um, I think the swing back to longer form, uh, will be, will be really interesting and longer term brand building. And as the data knits together, that's going to be a bigger force than we see now. Right now it's a like provocative voice that runs counter to the culture. But I think that that, that, that piece is coming. Um, I think that the, that machine learning will largely disappear into utility. So right now it's this idea like machine learning, it's big, it's going to be plumbing and we're not going to notice and we're not going to see it, but it's going to make us more efficient and ads better and, and advertising more effective and more creative. I, I believe it'll make us more creative. Um, so I see that, I see that coming. Um, what's interesting is I, I don't see, I don't see an end to the development of our attention. Like everyone imagines that there's peak attention at a certain point, like our brains are just going to short out. Um, and, and the more media that comes at us, the more able we are to filter it and absorb it. And, you know, there are little backlashes, little, you know, let's reset ourselves relative to our devices and media. But, um, but I think that we're co- going to continue to evolve there, that that is a place where we imagine that there's an endpoint that we're going to blow past and not even see and be in a new space. You know, a story, one of the things that, that hit me, again, going through the data, storytelling, advertising, persuasion, it's it's getting more and more sophisticated, more and more sophisticated every single day. And machine learning is only going to just take that into the stratosphere. Is there anything, is there, is there anything that niggles at you about that um, in terms of future concerns? And and the reason I asked this question, I was talking to Tiffany Bova, who, um, who works at Salesforce, and she's written a book called Growth IQ recently. And she said, she said her her end point was when her if my fridge can talk to my scales and also talk to my car, and when I hit a certain weight, it locks my fridge and it stops me going to the shop to buy Ben and Jerry's. That is the moment when I am out, like I'm out of the game at this point. I'm gonna I'm gonna move to an island. I'm renouncing the digital world. Is there? And it, this may be a no, but is there a point for you where you think when it gets to this level, I'm just nervous then? Um, I, I think that actually we've passed one of those for me, which is, which is a reconsideration of our relationship to privacy, where I think we had this thought that all data signals are great. And we had platforms that were able to gather them at extraordinary levels. And we weren't really paying attention. We just assumed good intent and that it would be good and things would be good. Um, and I think that we have gone in a new direction, right? GDPR and, and, and California privacy law and stuff. I think that they're great in that they're reestablishing civilizing social compact between, between myself and my activity and my data and, and advertisers ability to access that in a way that's work. Is it perfect? It's not perfect, but I think that that's a place where we veered into this, I think pretty, pretty rough territory and we're coming back into, I think into a better space around that. Um, and I don't know what shape that's going to take. It's not my part of my, my part of the world, but I feel like that's a, that's a, that's a place where we went. Um, I think what what I worry about is is the the hyper rationalization taking over. You know, right? The idea that 
this rational matching, you know, down to the nth level is going to deliver us to nirvana because it makes the work less interesting and makes advertising worse. And um, and I think that, you know, you can chase a certain kind of, of KPI in a direction that that supports that. Uh, it's always easy to rationalize in a deck as opposed to your Cadbury Gorilla. There's no reason it should work other than that it's awesome and it's awesome and it's awesome. And here we are, you know, a decade later still talking about it. Um, I, I think that uh, I think that the people who tell stories in decks don't know how to tell that story. And we, to your point, we need to be better about telling the story of emotion, of drama, of humanity, and it's and it's business impact because you know folks like Bennett and Fields are doing great research to say, hey, this emotionally rich brand building advertising is actually super powerful for your ROI. But they're, you know, two or three of thousands and thousands and thousands of data scientists who are like, well, you know, I can figure out what kind of car you want exactly if I just have enough data. And we're, we're learning to ask, uh, we're teaching the machines to ask questions machines are good at answering as opposed to questions that make the work better. And, you know, to the point of your about, about humanity, we're, we're, we're building machines that we can build because of what they can do, as opposed to things that would make us more fundamentally human. Uh, and I think there's an unbelievable opportunity to be helped there, more data and so on. Maybe not lock me out of my fridge and prevent me from going to, to, um, to, uh, to buy some Ben and Jerry's, but maybe supporting the impulses of my, of my better self, you know, in a direction. Like I think the prompts to stand up once an hour and look out. I would love to have those be imaginative also, right? To, to think about a different world. As I saw a presentation on creativity yesterday and it said you can be more creative if you're in a different environment, right? Go to the woods and you're more creative, but also you can be more creative just by suggesting like by, by saying to you, imagine that you're in the woods and now try and solve this problem, you'll be more creative. Um, and so if we can tune the science that we know and the tools that we have in the direction of a kind of humanity that is more like how we would like to be, that would be great. There's, there's something you just touched on there, which is the power of a metaphor. And I think that that is hugely underestimated for both within marketing, within storytelling and within sales, just within human persuasion. You know, I, I went to I went to the chiropractor last week and I was struggling with a certain exercise they were getting me to do. And I struggled with it for about 10 minutes and I just, I just was not getting it. And then she said, I can't remember the exact metaphor, but it was something like, I want you to imagine that, you know, you have an elastic band between this point and this point. And now I want you to stretch that elastic band. And I got it instantly. You know, something happens in our brains when, when someone uses a powerful enough metaphor that not only do we get it, but we're able to take action really fast. And yeah, just building on what you were saying about the power of creativity and, and humanity, our ability to be able to conjure up metaphors, which is something that machine learning would really struggle to do, that kind of linkage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it could suggest things that we could find patterns in, in ways that would be very compelling, but it, you know, then, then it becomes sort of automatic in some ways, like I can throw up any random patterns and our pattern seeking minds will find them and make interesting stuff out of them. All right, last question. My last question, if you could run one experiment, I was just thinking a bit about your world, you know, if you, if you could run one experiment, if I gave you an unlimited budget and you, you didn't have to have any, no definitive ROI, didn't have to convince anybody of the ROI of this experiment, what experiment would you run? I think it would be fascinating to the conversation that we were just having to do a longitudinal experiment on the stories that make us better people. 
So I would love to do an experiment with a set of stories and look longitudinally at long-term behavior change, what made us better. Uh, there, I, I struck always by the, by the uh, Harvard study over the course of 50 or 60 years, what meant long-term happiness, and it was connection to friends and family, other people, those relationships are what enrich us. Um, and I, I would love to do an experiment to say, what is the story that, you know, launches us in a, in a better space? Because the reasons that we do all the things that we're doing are stories in some form or another, right? Somebody said you should get married and have kids and go to college. That's a story. It isn't, it isn't you know, a biological fact in some way. Um, or that you should seek adventure or that fulfillment comes from physical ease or, you know, any, any of those things. Um, one of my favorite of those, of those stories um, I read in, in, the, in the sort of Victorian literature about exploring uh, Arabia Desirata. They were, they were uh, one of these explorers was connected to the Bedouin and the Bedouin believed that you should have a hard life, that light, you should be hungry and cold and, and you know, struggle with deprivation and so on because that makes you strong. That's what makes you the strongest. And so the goal of your life is to build strength, not to have ease. Um, and, you know, that's an amazing, amazing story, I think, about what the goal is and therefore what life choices you make and therefore, you know, how you move through the world. So I think it'd be an amazing to do an experiment to say, let's launch a set of stories and see which has durable impacts on making us better people. That would be that would be incredible. I'm I'm there for that. <laughs> Excellent. I'll give you bank account number. You can row. Walk, can we then. just, you know, looping back to the beginning of this conversation? Can we? Can we just use use your credit card? Let's just. just oh, that's right. I'll just put on my credit card. Yeah. I'll just let me just let me just loop in Steven Spielberg. We'll have him do one. We'll have Judd Apatow do one. We'll have Bernard Herzog do one. Maybe Miranda July do one, and see where see where it gets us. And you, you have a platinum card, right? I mean, this this could go on for 50, 60 years. <laughs> there's a, there, I think there's a level above platinum. Mine looks sort of tinny right now at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> Rusted, a rust-colored right. credit card. That's well, right. thank you once again. I mean, this is the second time. And again, I could talk to you. I could talk to you for hours. And no doubt this time next year, when you've run another 100 experiments, there'll be another conversation to be had. So thank you for coming back. My pleasure. I'll, I'll look forward to that when, when the time comes. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast. 
and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.